Let's try that again. The Lord be with you. It is good to be back with you, teaching this time. Um, I I hope that you uh, were very blessed, as I was, by all that uh, Carl had brought us in the last several weeks. If you recall, he taught for four or five weeks on the writings of the Old Testament, then transitioned us into the New Testament on the epistles. So he had uh, he had a hard job because he had two very diverse genres of, of biblical literature to tackle. Uh, we have another genre that we are going to start tackling today, that of the Gospels. But before we even delve into that, I want to talk about how it was intentional that we started with epistles and moved to the Gospels. That was intentional, because if you open up to the New Testament, it starts what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Then you get some, right? Those, though, there are the epistles, there were letters. So why is it that we started with epistles and then continued on to gospels? And it really, it was, in fact, uh, intentional because, as Carl pointed out, there is um, an internal versus an external chronology. So the internal chronology of the gospels says this happened when Jesus was alive. But in fact, the Gospels were written after Jesus was alive and after all the letters were written. Um, and so that is part of the reason why we've started with epistles. We're trying to pretend like we just stepped in a time machine. We were that church that got the, the epistles. Now we're getting the Gospels. So that's just a little bit of what um, why we're tackling them in this order. Now, I wanted to point these out, and the question of the morning, or the question for this slide at least, is do we recognize these? They are in our windows. Very good. So these are very hard to see unless you get on a stepladder or have a telescopic lens on your camera. These are part of the healing window, the very, very tip top. And uh, the, there are four angels... They're actually not all next to each other like this. This one is, these two uh, are up a little higher, right? Um, and they're holding a little shield with an animal or a person and a book. So any idea who is who? Here we have the lion. And that is for Mark, right? These are ancient church traditions, right? So Mark is associated with a lion. Anyone know for the human? It's actually Matthew. I did mix them up. They're mixed up on there too. And then John. And then this one I hope we know by now. There we go. Process of elimination. So these are already in our windows. Whether or not we recognize it or not, they're here, right? These are symbols of the evangelists that tell the story of Jesus. And uh, we won't talk about today, but we'll talk about another point. Why these symbols? We'll talk, I think in the last week of the class, we'll get to the symbols for the evangelists. There's just too much to cover today. But these are here every week. We just didn't know it, right? And so something is striking, which I see is even in these shields here, right? They're all all of these books are, are exactly the same, but there's four different methods of telling the story. So as we approach the Gospels, I hope this metaphor is helpful, but if not this, another may be helpful. That um, it, we don't have a picture of Jesus, right? Cameras weren't invented when Jesus was alive, but we have many beautiful paintings of Jesus. And what I, another, another metaphor I find helpful is to imagine um, we have these four Gospels. It's as if we have four artists who are painting different portraits of Jesus. You can't say, well, that's wrong, because it's art, right? So there's, a, there's something um, more going on here. Okay, we already talked about that. So outline of today's class. We'll be tracing the evolution of the Greek word uh, evangelion, which means gospel. We'll move into a conversation about how to understand the broader genre of the gospels. As well, we'll do a case study on the synoptic problem. So if you don't know what that means now, don't worry. 
We'll get there. Um, and as I shared last week, I'll, I'll tell you now and I'll tell you later, your homework for this coming week is to read through the Gospel of Mark. It is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 16 chapters. And so if you, ch- if you read two to three chapters a day, you can even skip a day and you'll still get all the way through it. Okay? Very good. So, evangelion, which is the the word that we use for gospel. That's why I'm spending a a little bit of time talking about this, because what is a gospel? Well, gospel has multiple layers of meaning. Also, I should point out, I have notes for you. I'm going to give them to you at the end. Um, Everything on the slides is here. But I, if, if you want to take notes, please do so. But this is the full uh, everything here. So you'll get that at the end of class. Okay. So in the pre-Christian era, right, even in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 4, uh, we read, David said, When the one who told me, see, Saul is dead, thought he was bringing me good news, a word like Evangelion, I seized him and I killed him. So at its most basic Evangelion is good news. It wasn't good news for that guy. He thought it was, but it wasn't, unfortunately for him. Um, And around the time of Jesus, this Greek word was often used to refer to an announcement of good tidings, especially when somebody important had been born, like a new emperor, or that they had ascended to the throne. This is good news. So you can imagine, you know, extra, extra, read all about it. You can imagine a little boy back in Palestine about 2,000 years ago saying, Evangelion, Evangelion, read all about it, right? Um, And then we find this inscription from just a few years before Jesus was born, around 9 BC, which declared the birth of this guy here, uh, the Emperor Augustus. And it, he, this inscription declared that the birth marked for the world the beginning of good tidings, Evangelion, through his coming. And here is that inscription, the, pri- the pre-calendar inscription from 9 BC, where we find that word, Evangelion, good news. But then we open up our Bibles and we find this word over in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Wait a second, what is the gospel? What is the gospel when we come into the Christian, uh, Christian meaning? What is this good news? I thought the good news was that Jesus died and was resurrected and, and we can be saved through Jesus. Well, if that's the case, what is Jesus preaching about here? The very beginning of his ministry. Bingo. Kingdom, right? Kingdom of heaven. God has broken in. The kingdom of heaven is here. That's what Jesus is proclaiming. That is the good news Jesus has brought to us. And then after the resurrection, we still see again use of the usage of the same word, evangelion, when Jesus says to the 11, right? Judas is gone by this point. Um, Jesus says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. Okay, so that was stage two. Stage three, and we're moving through this quickly because we do have a lot to cover. Stage three, we move into the, the time of kerygma, proclaiming the good news, right? That's the word kerygma, mission, and Paul's usage. And for the apostles and disciples, they all heeded this, this mission to go into all the world. Right, And when they were doing that, they encountered a lot of people who may not have been Jewish or who may not have known the story of Jesus at all. So they have to go back to the beginning. They have to tell everything because there's nowhere to start. They have to start at the very beginning. And so um, for them, the New Testament, um, in the epistles in particular, gospel refers to that oral proclamation. We, they are going and they are telling, right? Heeding the great commission that Jesus gave them uh, of what Jesus, who Jesus was and what he accomplished through life, death, and resurrection, the promise of the future return to establish God's reign, and the concomitant call to re- repent and have faith. Okay, 
So, now we move from an oral gospel to a written gospel. And this is where things start to have more meaning here for us. Because oral traditions, some people may not have known, but the oral traditions did abound, right? This is what um, everyone heard something about, especially if you lived in Palestine. uh, You knew something about Jesus. But there is a problem. Fast forward a few decades, and you've got uh, people starting to die off. People starting to forget what happened. What was the story? Or you get people so far away that they don't have the story. And so you want to give them the story in a written form. And so that's what necessitates this move from oral to written gospel. And I I should point out, because this is the point at which some scholars may say, oh, the gospels are not trustworthy because there was that distance, right, between the death of Jesus and the writing down of the gospel stories. But Anything like that, there may be some loss of memory, there may be some confusion, and we'll, we'll come to those sorts of discussions later. But, um, but quite frankly, the oral stories continued. They persisted. These, this is the lifeblood of the communities. What has God done in Jesus Christ? This is good news. So we are going to memorize this. We're going to really commit this to our hearts. And so when you get the written Gospels, if these written Gospels don't align with what you remember or what you know of Jesus, you're going to reject it. And so there's already a checks and balance system from the very early church to say, if they're accepting it, and they knew Jesus, they were around when Jesus was alive, and they accept these as gospel truth, then this is good news that we can trust in as well. But there's something funny here as we consider the move from oral to written and consider that the epistles were written first and then the gospels, the canonical four, were written thereafter. In Galatians chapter 1, the apostle Paul uh, pronounced a double anathema, curse upon curse on anyone, even an angel. Think of those angels back in the stained glass window who tried to supplement the one true gospel with another. So uh, one, one author who will come up quite a, bu- quite a bit in this class, Francis Watson, asked a very interesting question. He said, what would Paul have made of the suggestion that there are, or should be, not just one, but two, three, four gospels? Something interesting to ponder. And then moving into the gospels themselves, here, very first verse of Mark, which we'll, you'll study more in depth next week. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, what is this good news? What is this good news? As we've talked about a little before, it is a, a recapitulation, a systematic recapitulation of all the stories of Jesus' life. And this is an important, important part. It is particularly from baptism all the way through resurrection. And that by itself is a definition, a working definition of the scope and the arc of the story for any of our gospels. Some say, oh, we should add a little bit more to the beginning. Some say we should add a little more to the end. But at the very least, Mark starts at the baptism and ends with the resurrection. Correct. Yes. No, no. Yeah. Luke adds, adds before the baptism, right? Luke and Matthew both add infancy narratives. And then they talk about uh, their, I think it's John talks about the the circumcision. And then Luke mentions Jesus being in the temple. But Mark, because those, those expand the narrative. Mark at the very least goes from baptism to resurrection. And that's important. We'll talk our last week together, we'll talk about the apocryphal Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas and Mary, all those that are out there are not really Gospels as we understand them. They add to the story. They supplement the story. But, but we have no other Gospel that goes from baptism through resurrection. Okay. As we consider these, our written Gospels... Um, and particularly the names of the evangelists. Um, originally, these documents were not signed, right? Today, 
if you got a book from, uh, if you went to Books a Million and bought a book and there was no author's name on it, you'd think, this is really weird. Why is there no author on that? Um, well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have copyrights. They didn't talk about plagiarism like we do. Um, it, in fact, plagiarism back then was a form of honoring the person who had written it. You, you're, that was so good. I want to take some of that. I was like, yeah, it was good. By all means, go ahead and copy it. You know, they didn't have the same sense of, of ownership and authorship. And so these, these documents were not signed, right? It was a, a post-compositional attribution of all these documents. Um, but we have something, um, they were often, often just called the Gospel of the Lord. A very early document called the Didache, which is important for the early church and important for us if we want to read it. It's a great, uh, great book. It's, it reads, uh, one part, do not pray like the hypocrites, but as the Lord commanded in his gospel, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In his gospel, the Lord commanded in his gospel, in whose gospel? The Lord's gospel. But that's, that doesn't sound like an oral gospel. That sounds like that's some written document. A little later, uh, the Didache continues, your prayers and alms and all your acts perform just as you have them in the gospel of our Lord. What Watson says here, uh, I'll summarize to say, he says, gospel here is clearly a written text. And again, you have all of these quotes here in the document uh, that I'll pass out at the end of class. This is clearly a written document. And for the Didache, it doesn't matter who wrote it because Jesus said it. Jesus said those things in the gospel, those written accounts. So at that time, very early, right, this is um, between 150 and 200 AD. This is the time when it doesn't matter who really wrote it because we're quoting from it, but Jesus said it. We don't need to say, as this probably was from the gospel of Matthew, um, we don't need that. If the Lord commanded something, it's unimportant to know the name of the scribe who recorded it. Uh, I'm coming back to the names. The names are important because really what they do, uh, the names of the four Gospels, rather than being clear-cut authorship attributions, what they really do is help to differentiate between the four. So uh, around 100, uh, 180 uh, CE or AD, Irenaeus wrote, who was a bishop of Lyon, he wrote this. Matthew, among the Hebrews and in their own language, produced a written account of the gospel. While Peter and Paul were in Rome evangelizing and founding the church, after their departure, Mark also, the disciple and interpreter of Paul, handed down to us in written form what was preached by Peter. Okay. And Luke, the follower, that should say follower, that didn't say for some reason, follower of, of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by him. And John, the disciple of the Lord, who reclined upon his breast, published a gospel while living in Ephesus in Asia. Now, some of these finer points, scholars today may say, I don't know if Irenaeus had that quite right. Um, almost nobody, nobody alive thinks that Matthew actually wrote um, his gospel originally in Hebrew. That was something that the early church fathers were... Um, all believed, and we're not quite sure why, because there's no evidence to that. There's no evidence that the Gospel of Matthew is a translation, but that was what the early church fathers believed. But what's interesting here is that at the, at the time that the church is first claiming that we must acknowledge four Gospels, is also the first time that we get these four names together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is 180 CE. This is at least 80, if not 100 years after the composition of the Gospels. Jane, question? Luke, uh, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this as an orderly, orderly account. I'm writing this to Theophilus, but, but I'm... But, and you could correct me on this. I actually, I'm, I'm, I don't believe he self-identifies. Um, look it up for me. Tell me. I, I'd be glad to be corrected. 
Yeah, but does it say Luke in there? Does it say Luke? It's not. So. So uh, this is something important. Then Irenaeus goes on to then say um, from here, it is not possible for the Gospels to be either more or fewer in number than these four. Um, and that Christ, the divine word, has been bestowed upon the, has bestowed upon the church a fourfold gospel. An evangelion tetramorphon. Evangelion again, gospel, right? Um, and it would be another almost 200 years before the whole canon is established and in place. But pretty much most of the canon is in place within a few decades of this point. Um, but and Irenaeus goes on to say that you can look at the you can look at the world and see the four winds and the four corners of the earth and know that God meant there to be four gospels, which is not the not the best by our modern standards. It's not the best argument, but um, but he was convinced, and as should we be, that four gospels are the right number of gospels. So as we're looking at these and we're considering. Um, and understanding what Irenaeus said and what the church has understood about the, the four, um, we understand that Matthew and John are an apostolic witness. That means that they are the ones who, who are claiming to have been present for Jesus' ministry. And Mark and Luke, what, what Jane just read for us a few moments ago, um, they are, they are post-apostolic witnesses, right? So Mark, the tradition is that Mark was a student of Peter, and Luke said... I wasn't there, but I'm trying to give you an orderly account of all that happened. So that's a, uh, even though this is not the canonical order, Matthew and John, Mark and Luke, it's good to remember this kind of separation between Matthew and John and Mark and Luke. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, go, go. Absolutely. Sure. And I would hang my hat on, regarding your argument, which I think is a sound argument, I hang my, I use that argument and hang my hat on the idea that the gospel, the content of the gospels is what is, what is trustworthy. Um, the authorship, I could go either way, quite frankly. Um, be, if, if this particular Matthew or another Matthew or this John, or you know, the John we know of, if it were someone else, I think the content was verified and proven to be trustworthy by the communities. But part of the issue there with a clear attribution of these Gospels is the way that they were disseminated. And the, the speed of dissemination is not as fast by today's standards. And so it could, I, I'm not saying this is, no scholar would necessarily make this argument. But you, you gave the idea that Luke might say, well, I didn't write that. Um, I don't know that it would have necessarily had a, a, such a quick a dissemination for that to even be able to happen. I don't know. Um, but that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I, again, for, for me, the authorship um, is secondary to the content. The content, I believe, is trustworthy. The authorship is a little shakier. Um, as I hinted at the beginning of our, our time in this, this stages of, of the gospel, um, the reductionist evangelical model would say that um, the gospel is just this. Believing Jesus died, your sins can be forgiven and you can be saved, period, end of story. That's the gospel. Um, and as we've just looked at the gospel, the usage of the gospel, we can say, oh, there's a little bit more to it than that. Okay. Um, Questions at this point? Fred? Gospel. 
Ooh. Were the Gospels a summation of the oral history? I would probably say that Luke would fit that model best, but I don't know that uh, each one, each of the Gospels would necessarily be that. Um, as we'll talk about in a minute with, with genre, and we'll talk about in the coming weeks, each, each Gospel writer, each evangelist has a purpose uh, in a particular way in which they're writing. Just like an artist would have a particular um, style in which they're painting, each artist uh, has a, a point, um, each gospel writer that is, has a point. And so it's not just a collection of oral history. Um, I think there's, there's more going on. This is just a summation of what we did. Um, I want to move on to uh, talking about reading the gospels. Uh, as a genre... The Gospels are quite hard to classify because we want to call them biographies, but uh, that's not quite right. When you think of a biography, what might you expect? You might expect something like this. Tina Fey's Bossy Pants. I haven't read it. Courtney has and said it was quite good. Um, I haven't read it, and so I, I, I don't know the content, but I have a guess as to what certain, what certain things I may expect in here. Anybody, has anyone read this book in here? Good. Good. Because I wonder, what would, if, you were, if you saw this, you went to Books A Million, and this was in the biography section, and you opened it up, would you expect there to be aliens and UFOs in this book? No. That would be the science fiction fantasy section. What would, what would you expect to find in this book? A controlling person? Okay. <laughs> Moving away from the title, more to the general genre of biography. What do we expect to see in a biography? Did you have some? Okay, an account of her life, including childhood, parents, life experiences, probably the highs and the lows. She's, this is an autobiography, right? So she's writing in her own voice. Right, so someone else who comes along in another twenty years might write a, a biography on Tina Fey, and it, it would probably be different. Right, we could step back and say, "Oh, hindsight's twenty twenty. She thought that was the high point of her career. Well, she was wrong. She if she would have waited five more years, she didn't even know this was coming." Right, those types of things are what we expect, all the way from childhood and 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 friends and family and. Hard times and those awkward teenage years, those are kind of what we expect from a biography, especially modern biography of a person. But we don't get that. We don't get all of that in the story of Jesus. Not one of the Gospels or the Gospel writers set out to... I don't know why this is giving me so much trouble today. Um, Not one of the Gospel writers started out by saying, this is going to be a comprehensive account of everything Jesus did. Not one. Even John writes, Jesus did many more things than these. And if I were to write all of them, there wouldn't be enough room in the world to hold all that, that Jesus, um, Jesus did. So nothing is comprehensive. So we have to understand this genre differently. And by this, for this, I use a book, uh, Jonathan Pennington's Reading the Gospels Wisely, which is a helpful introduction to this. Um, and he says that the Gospels are most like ancient biographies, and we use the word bioi uh, instead of just biography to differentiate between them. And he says, with this distinction we can allow for greater flexibility in chronology and understand structure in the ancient, ancient biographies are more around topics, more around themes rather than our modern sensibilities, which would say you start with childhood, you talk about family, then you talk about those awkward teenage years. Did you make it? Did you break it? What, what were some of those careers, right? That is what we expect. We go to the Gospels, we don't get that. So we can't impose our modern sensibilities on a 2,000-year-old uh, genre, Right? Um, yeah, that's okay. Um, something also that's particular, particularly interesting about the genre of the Gospels is it's not just, oh, isn't that a nice book, right? Um, in fact, the Gospels, like ancient biographies, are saying, 
this is someone that we should emulate, right? So other important people and poets and politicians would have ancient biographies written about them. Um, but this one, uh, the Gospels aren't just saying, ah, it's a cool person, we should really be like them. It's more, this is, uh, they're almost more like sermons. They're supposed to be instruments of transformation, not just conveyors of information. Um, and this is a quote I'd never heard before, and I love this. Augustine famously claimed that unless our reading of the Bible results in greater love for God and neighbor, we have not truly understood the scriptures. Okay. So this is a, a very, this is a lengthy definition from Pennington, but a helpful one. Uh, he says our canonical gospels, so that canon, right? These are the four accepted gospels we have in the scriptures. Our canonical gospels are the theological, talking about God, historical, talking about the story, what happened, and the archaeological. That was a new word for me, and he defines it, right? Uh, virtue forming. Biographical narratives that retell the story and proclaim the significance of Jesus Christ, who through the power of the Spirit is a restorer of God's Rain. Okay, I'll take that. Questions on that? That's a lot. That's, I mean, we could spend the rest of the class just trying to delve into that. Okay, no questions. All right, so now we're going to move into the third part of our class, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time uh, to really do a case study. So, in, in, in case study in the synoptic gospels, and if you don't know what that means yet, you will in just a, just a minute here. Um, that the book that we still have copies of, the reading, um, actually, what is the title of it? Ian Stewart's um, "How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth." We still have several copies. We offered that at the beginning of the class. We still do have copies. If you don't have one and want one, uh, it is very helpful. One thing that they say, particularly with the gospels. As there are two, way, two major ways you can read them. You can read them vertically, meaning you can read them on their own merits, right? Just read Mark. What does Mark have to say? Just read John. What does John have to say? Or you can read them horizontally. And by that, uh, Fian Stewart suggests that you can read them in comparison with the rest. And that's a little bit of what we're going to do today. We're going to read them um, by comparing them. Um, and when we start to do that, we recognize that um, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to be very similar. There's some things that are, whoa, very, very different. But there's all these similarities. And then we get to John, and we think, oh, well, it's just going to be another one, just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And whoa, is it different. It is completely unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It still tells the same story. And if we go back to the, the idea of, the Gospels each being uh, a portrait of who Jesus is, you might get, you know, a romantic portrait of Jesus. You might get an Impressionist. And then you get, you know, and then you get to John and it's like a Cubist Jesus. And it's like, there's a nose and there's hair and that's it. That's all, you know. It's so different than all the rest. It's almost unrecognizable, right? So because of that, scholars say these first three are looking with the same eye, synoptic, the same eye, with the same eye. And so those are called, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called um, the synoptics. Uh, another thing from Watson, which I like, it's helpful. He says the fourfold gospel really has a three plus one structure. Three plus one, because the three are really together, right? It's not just one plus one plus one plus one. It's really three Plus one. You still get the four, but it's helpful grouping. Okay. Have we seen this? So it's, it's Jesus preaching to the crowds. And it's a little comic here saying, okay, everyone, now listen carefully. I don't want to end up with four different versions of this. Okay. Or how about this one? A teacher talking to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John saying, see me after class. Your book reports are surprisingly similar, right? Now, as I hinted at earlier, 
Um, plagiarism in the, the ancient world was a thing of respect. It was actually, you liked to be plagiarized. That meant, that meant the people were reading what you wrote, and that meant you did a good job. Um, so imagine that we are this teacher here. I imagine this to be the Charlie Brown teacher. I don't know about you. Wah, 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 right? Um, imagine that you're this teacher, and you have to figure out who cheated who cheated from who? Like who was it? Was this kid looking off of just this paper, or was he looking off of everybody? How did these gospels get written? Who's cheating, quote unquote, um, off of whom? So that's what we're going to do in, the, in our case studies. Um, but before we do that, this is a big chart. You also have this in your packet. This is. Um, this is the relationship between the synoptics, particularly what we'll be looking at in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, you have only 3% that is unique to Mark. You have uh, 3% that it shares exclusively with Luke. 18% that it has that's only a part of Matthew. But then, whoa, three quarters of the Gospel of Mark is used in both Luke and Matthew. So there's, these stories are being retold and um, in all three Gospels. And so we call that the triple tradition. Then in Luke, right, we see we have 40% that comes from Mark. We have 23%, about a quarter of it, that's part of the double tradition. That what it shares with Matthew. Well, where did it get that material? That's what we're going to try to answer here. And then a 35% is unique to Luke. 20% of Matthew is unique to Matthew. Um, has anyone ever seen this chart before? Okay, a few folks. So I find this extremely helpful. And I'm like, well, what is in this unique? St- I, I, I get drawn to the unique stuff. Well, what does Luke tell that nobody else does? Um, and that's stuff like the Good Samaritan passage, right? Um, a lot of parables, the parable of the lost coin, the lost uh, sheep, all those exclusively, uniquely found in Luke. Okay. So in the ancient church, um, so the early church, the first few centuries, they thought Matthew was the oldest gospel, right? Just like Irenaeus said before, right? In his list, he started with Matthew. Um, And then he said, oh, well, the other gospel writers knew Matthew and they copied from him. Um, In modern parlance, we call this the Greisbach hypothesis. Um, And it's an older theory. It was accepted for generations. I don't know of any major scholar that still believes this. Um, And what this proposes, though, it's helpful to understand. Matthew was written first, what we call priority, Matthean priority. Luke came second, and then Mark and posteriority, or that Mark was written last and summarized or abridged the previous two. Have we ever heard this before? We've probably, if anything, heard the other way around. But I want to to walk through some passages to talk about why scholars have moved away from this and moved away from what the early church thought was just a foregone conclusion. So we're going to look at, I believe it's five different passages to talk about why this isn't quite what we still, scholars still hold on to. And the first one is a case study here. So I want you to just take um, 30 seconds to look at this and then another 30 seconds to talk at table. And um, I want you to consider, here we have parallel healing stories. Only Mark is using the exact words of Jesus, Talitha kum, in Aramaic. Which is more likely? That Matthew and Luke omitted the very words of Jesus, or Mark added them. So, take 30 seconds, consider, talk a table, see what you come up with.
Okay. Do we have any big insights we want to share with the class? Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Okay. So which is more likely? Are Matthew, is it more likely that Matthew and Luke are omitting the words of Jesus or translating them without using the Aramaic or that Mark then added them in? How about we, how about we hold up our fingers? fingers uh, or hold up our hand for one. Mark, or Matthew and Luke omitted them? Yeah, we all have to vote here, folks. Forced voting, which is likely. One or two. Mark added them. So, the folks who voted for two are right with the early church in saying, well, why? yeah, of course. Matthew or Mark came along and said, we're going to add some stuff. This is going to be the words of Jesus. But if you consider that these Gospels were being written to communities that no longer spoke Aramaic, that is one of the key factors in saying, it's not going to be very helpful if I start speaking into you in Aramaic because you're not going to understand it. So what Luke does is just translate it. And Matthew doesn't even have the conversation at all. So an earlier, con- the conclusion that most scholars would make is that the earlier composition would be more likely to contain the exact Aramaic because they'd be understood by the earliest audience. Later would have to translate and shy away from the Aramaic. So, also, so not to confuse the exact words with magic, because if you don't know this language, you may say, oh, that's a word of Jesus. I have really no idea what that means, but if that's a word of Jesus, there's power there. So there must be magic. I'm going to use that word. But for if you spoke Aramaic and you just you understood Talitha Kum to mean, get up, kid, come on, um, it wouldn't sound magic. But to a Greek-speaking audience... There's some, something strange that will go on with Aramaic. And what, in fact, we do find Mark has the only one, is the only one who uses multiple uh, Aramaic phrases throughout his gospel. Okay, case study two, feeding the 5,000. So we'll start with Mark. Jesus ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Jesus said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So you can probably figure out, I'm interested in this particular word, green. Why is it that Mark alone includes that specific detail? And that the others do not. So again, the question becomes, which is more likely? That Matthew and Luke omitted it, or Mark came along and said, oh, We've got to add this. 30 seconds. At your tables. Go. Okay, any words of wisdom, pearls of wisdom you want to share with the rest of the class? What do we find? What do we think after we consider this for 30 seconds? Nancy. Right? Absolutely. Okay, so there's two. So as we just, as we read vertically and we just consider Mark, that's a really interesting detail. So, yeah, it's probably spring. So this is giving us a clue of exactly when this is happening. And I, one, one uh, source I saw said that it's, pr- it's probably giving a clue as to when this is in relation to holidays, right? So this is probably near Passover, I think was a suggestion. Um, and the other was from Psalm 23, Right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Okay, so reading it vertically, wow, there's a lot there. That's really cool. But if we consider the relationships here, 
which is more likely? Matthew and Luke omit this, or Mark adds it? Scholars would say that um, the later gospel writers are saying, we don't need to know that. This, I think this is like the only color mentioned in any of the gospels, right? Um, we don't need a color. We don't, just, it's a scratch. They didn't get what Mark was trying to do. Um, and so again, scholars would say this points to Mark probably being first. There's extra details. There's more stuff going on in Mark. That's right, overall, and that's because he doesn't have infancy narratives, he doesn't have resurrection appearances, um, and ascension. If he had all those things, he probably would be longer. He tells the story more vividly and more detailed, which is very strange. It's contrary to what we might think. Okay, now we come to a story where Jesus cures a blind man at Bethsaida. Let's, I'm going to read it for us. Yeah, we don't have the microphone out, so I'll just go for it. When Jesus had put saliva on his eyes... Not Jesus' own eyes, the the blind man. And laid his hands on him. He asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people. But they look like trees walking. So then Jesus laid laid his hands on his eyes again. And he looked intently and his sight was restored. And then the blind man saw everything clearly. Now what's really interesting about this it's a healing story of Jesus. But it's not in Matthew. And it's not at all in Luke. What do we make of this? 30 seconds. Go. Great. So I'm hearing some interesting conversations around the room. If I may just summarize, I I heard one table say, well, if there's all those healing stories out there, maybe they just didn't want to repeat it. And I heard another another say, um, oh, now I just forgot what you said, Cindy. What was it that you said? Oh, yeah, so the, the idea was, did he perhaps witness it or did he hear it firsthand but the idea going back to that second comic with the teacher standing before the four when you get down to it there are some exact when you start to compare it is very obvious if it were a teacher and these were really assignments that there is copying going on so it's not there there are certainly some the unique passages could be through those methods and this perhaps could be but there's something particular and i heard it at this table i think what is going on did it took jesus two times to heal what do you mean jesus doesn't need to try twice he gets it on the first chance every time and that is why people would conclude matthew and luke probably don't want to include this because the suggestion is Jesus can't do it on the first time. Now, if you read the story in context, again, if you go and read vertically in Mark, just after this, Jesus is talking to the disciples and saying, are you guys blind? How are you not getting this? I've tried and I've tried and you're not getting it. And so I think that this is, I don't know if it's a necessarily a historical event as much as it is an idea uh, as it is an idea that Jesus is trying to have to convince these disciples to see the light of God and to see what's going on in their midst. So I'm, I'm not, I, 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 it's a hard passage, right? Matthew and Luke didn't include it because they said, I don't know what to do with that. 
You mean Jesus couldn't heal him the first time? So I, I don't know. Uh, Sandy. Oh. And that's certainly an interpretation. That's certainly an interpretation that's out there. And if you, when you read, again, when you read vertically, that, that's absolutely a, a valid interpretation. There could be something going on with the man. Um, it, but what really does push against that is, you mean Jesus couldn't do it on the first time? Jesus couldn't overpower? Jesus couldn't act by the Spirit and do it anyways? And to say that, what I would struggle with that if I were preaching on this text, um, which I don't think I have, Actually, I have. No, it was my very first sermon. Um, what I would struggle with now is to say, does that mean that we have power to stop Jesus? And that, so that's, I would have to wrestle with that. I, yeah, but, but the guy is asking for healing in the first place. And so it's, it gets tricky. It gets tricky. I don't know. But the, the point is when we read horizontally, they're not there. They're not copying this part of that test because they're saying, that's a little, that's a, it makes me squeamish. I'm not sure what to do with that. We're going to zoom through the rest of these. Over in Mark 14, there's in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't exactly know why, but there's this guy following them. He's wearing nothing but a linen cloth and then the authorities catch him and they catch him by the linen cloth and he runs off naked. What? No, I've never heard a sermon on this. I would love to hear a sermon on this. Because um, I have no idea what's going on in this story. Um, I, yeah, I did. I have. Uh, it's a really strange detail. Nobody knows who this is. Nobody knows why this has happened. And Matthew and Luke are like, what is Mark including in his gospel? Why don't need that. It, it, it's a really strange detail to include. And it... it, it contributes very little to the narrative, right? We don't know who this is. We don't, we know he's running away, but so is everyone else. And he's running away naked. I think, right, just like if you look at ancient art, uh, a few generations later, you may find people who painted up little, painted on little leaves to cover up certain bits. This is one of those stories, right? They don't like it. So they're not including that particular detail. Again, this goes to Marcus first because there's this strange factor uh, the strange details, the Aramaic, all that. Okay, so if Mark was last, right? That's what the early church believed. If Mark was last and he was summarizing all the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke at that point, he's omitting the infancy narratives, the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount, also called the Sermon on the Plain over in Luke, and any resurrection appearances. What? That makes no sense. Why would he do that? If he's summarizing them, he's leaving a whole lot out. So uh, Davies and Allison, Dale Allison was actually one of my professors at seminary. Um, They asked the question, can anyone seriously envision someone writing Matthew and Luke and omitting the miraculous birth of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the resurrection appearances, while on the other hand adding that tale? of the naked young man, a healing story in which Jesus had trouble healing, and the remark that Jesus' family thought him mad. That's another story we didn't even go into. Um, but Mark says, Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. Um, if I'm, re- I'm going to tell the story my own way, I'm not going to include that. Right? But, thank God we have Mark. We have to wrestle with these passages. When we read vertically, we have to wrestle with those passages. Okay. Yes, we're going to zoom through this. So we can affirm Mark in priority, but then what do we do with Matthew and Luke? Um, Obviously, we don't know Greek. Um, I can pronounce this. I don't know everything that's going on either. But I want to highlight here, this is exactly the same. This is one of those passages that are shared only between Matthew and Luke. 
This isn't in Mark at all. It's almost exactly the same. The only differences are here uh, in bold and underlined. So there's one word missing. Kai is just the word and. And these are slightly different forms of the same word. And this is exactly, this is a totally different word. One says begin and one says think. That's about the only difference in this whole passage, which is three verses. You offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit that proves your repentance and don't think or begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Okay, this whole passage is not present in Mark. What do we make of this? What can we possibly do with this? Um, It can either mean that these two, one of these gospel writers knew the other, or that they share another common source. So, um, the other common source, this is what I was taught in seminary. It's called the two-source hypothesis, right? This is similar to the, the chart we had before, that Matthew and Luke have lots of mark. They have some things that are unique to them, but then drawing from a common source called Q, which was developed in the early 1800s by uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. He says, there's another source. And he's speaking German. The word source in German is Quelle. And so um, he says, this is it. This is Q. Um, But the problem with this is that there's zero ancient attestation. Irenaeus of Lyon did not say, oh, yeah, they were using Q. No, he, no one ever had heard of this before the 1800s. Um, and we don't have any papyrus that looks like Q, right? We have nothing like that. So it's troublesome. How can we base biblical studies on a document that we don't have? Um, yet, we cannot make a strong argument from absence of evidence. You can't do that because we could in another 100 years find Q in a cave somewhere. This is the strongest theory. Most seminaries still teach this. Most scholars still hold on to this. But then you get into these stories where there's interspersings, right? This is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see this in all three Gospels, but the way they're retelling it is very, very similar. So it's not just like I'm copying from one and changing it in my own way, but it's more like I'm copying from one and copying from another, What is going on here? And then, um, yeah, this is the Farrer hypothesis. And this is um, what I find to be most interesting. It's proposed by uh, Austin uh, Farrer in 1955. And lots of British scholars uh, particularly hold on to this. Um, I won't even go through the list there. But to say... um, that they believe in Mark and priority, but then Matthew came next, and Luke drew upon them both. So if we come to this, considering who copied, how, how do they copy, um, we come back to this. And what I want to highlight here is coming back to the three plus one, the three plus one, the synoptics are the three. We have to consider, do we have here two Gospels between Mark and Matthew, or two additions of one gospel. Maybe Matthew came and said, I need to update this. And maybe he hoped to replace it, saying, I can tell that story better. I was there. Or I have more, I have more evidence. And so maybe he was trying to come through and replace it. But does Luke then come by and add a third edition? So the question that Watson poses, which I think is something we have to wrestle with, is are the evangelists more like individual authors or like anonymous editors. So our takeaways from today, there you go, I'm passing out our notes here, is that the word gospel can mean many different things depending on the context and the time period, Um, but we can, yeah, Um, but we should always remember good news. And by reducing the scope of the meaning down to the modern uh, meaning of salvation by Jesus's death, is an unfortunate oversimplification. There's much more to it. Also, the genre of our four Gospels is like, an, like ancient biographies. And there's a complex relationship between the synoptic Gospels. Mark was written first, 
but scholars are particularly divided on how Matthew and Luke are related. I, as I said, I learned the two-source hypothesis with Q. I learned that in seminary. I've been doing a lot of reading and preparation for this class, um, particularly Watson, one of those British scholars who likes the fairer hypothesis. And I'm being kind of won over to that. Um, It's, and there is an oral element in here as well. But, but when you get such things as this, um, you, can't, you can't explain this to an, by just an oral difference. They're obviously drawing from Mark, but then there's some interdependence between them that the fair hypothesis um, takes into account and answers that the two-source two hypothesis does not. So, oops, I'm going the wrong way. Um, to finish out our class, I want to remind you of our homework. There we go. Read through the Gospel of Mark for next week. I will not be with you. I will be in sunny Florida. And Pastor Ben will be with you. Before we close, I know we're already over time, but before we close our time together, can we pray? Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. We give you thanks for the work of these evangelists who so long ago took it upon themselves to retell and to summarize and to, um, to give us your story. We thank you, God, for their words and that through them and by them, we can know more of who you are. We thank you, God, that through them, we can be transformed and made into your disciples. Help us, God, in this class, not to um, get bogged down with the details, but to see your spirit at work moving through each of these evangelists and, and telling your story. Help us to see your spirit at work. Be in our hearts as you were in the hearts of those evangelists so long ago. We give this day all that we are, all that we say, all that we do over to you, almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and say together, amen. Thank you.